0: Our text this morning will be in Philippians chapter 1, continuing to consider our theme here of joy from Paul's letter to the believers in Philippi. For many years our family gathered at a relative's cottage on Lake Michigan for a family reunion every year something that we looked forward to and uh, always kind of a highlight time. Uh, When I was about 10 years old, my cousins and I were digging holes in the sand. I've maybe shared this story with you before. I've shared it with my kids before. It has lived on in infamy. Uh, My cousins and I were digging holes in the sand. We would come back about 20 feet from the water's edge and start digging each in our own hole and Uh, The goal was to see who could hit water first. It was a little game that we would play. And um, it was evening. My extended family was sitting at a campfire, not too far away, singing. And um, I'm face down in the hole, right? Digging out, pulling out the sand as I go. And I hit water. And then I also realized about the same time that I couldn't get out of the hole. I'd gotten down in far enough that I couldn't extract myself. And the sides of the hole are caving in. And I start to yell. (laughs) Uh, And at first I was really angry. Like, why is no one paying attention to me? You know, I didn't realize you can't hear the sound you know is absorbed by the sand, and there 's singing going on thirty yards away on the beach. No one could hear me, but uh, it didn 't take long for my anger to turn into fear, <laughs> and uh, it 's getting darker, and i 'm wondering, is anybody going to see my feet sticking up out of the out of the sand right? I don't know if you call this a near-death experience, but it certainly was to my ten-year-old self, right? I don't know if you've encountered what you might consider a, uh, an encounter with death in a in a really profound way. Um, some of you have been in serious automobile accidents. Uh, others have faced about with cancer. Some have sat at the bedside of a loved one as they have passed from this life and those kinds of experiences those encounters with death uh, certainly change us they, they make us look at life differently all the sort of peripheral stuff uh, of life is cleared away and things come into very sharp focus it's like those smelling salts right that they give a person who is uh, kind of has some brain fog going on right and Whoa, you know, you, all of a sudden, you're, 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 you're present again. <laughs> your, your, your mind is sort of cleared out again. Uh, we also, of course, encounter th- this dynamic when we attend a funeral. When we are forced to stop and think about our mortality. You know, we can have the radio on, we have all these distractions, but there's moments in life where those distractions are sort of peeled away, and we have to face the realities of life and death a passage that ben read for us here this morning out of ecclesiastes it's better to attend funerals than festivals for the end of every man is death and it is good to think about it while there is still time these are these are really significant times when we attend a funeral right Uh, I referenced Pilgrim's Progress last week. I'm going to reference it again today. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan's classic work, tells the story of a man named Christian. And as Bunyan begins the story, he introduces Christian as one who had a book in his hand and a crushing burden on his back. And the, the book in his hand was the Word of God, and the burden was the crushing weight, the crushing guilt of his sin. And he sets out uh, to find a way to relieve his burden, right? To have his sins forgiven. So that's Christian's story. And along the way, Christian encounters uh, a fellow traveler named Hopeful. And Hopeful's story was a little bit different. One day they get talking about, you know, uh, how Hopeful became a pilgrim. And, uh, and Hopeful had really was, was very... Uh, he was just caught up with the fun things of life, the pleasures of life. He, he really, he was kind of distracted from his sin. He didn't think about it that much. A uh, Christian's like very aware of his sin, right? He is, this, he is guilty and he knows it. Uh, Hopeful, not so much. Hopeful was having a good time. He was really enjoying life. But there were these little moments where Hopeful would encounter and come face to face with his sin, <laughs> Uh, It's described this way. Uh, Many things, for example, if I heard the Bible read or mentioned, if I was sick, if I heard that one of my neighbors was sick, I I heard the bell toll for someone who had died, if I thought of dying myself, or if if I heard that someone had died unexpectedly, right? These were the, the things that sort of would shake him to his true condition. And that is certainly true for all of us when we encounter death in any way. Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was in prison and on trial for the gospel as he writes this letter. Right? He did not know how it was going to turn out. Uh, Paul expresses some confidence that he's going to be released, but th- th- this is very unclear. It reflects on the nature of life and death. And it's what I'm calling the death row effect. That when you are facing the prospect of death, you tend to see things more clearly. Right There's that, that big idea. The prospect of death brings clarity to one's thinking. I'm calling it the death row effect. And you don't have to be on death row to... Uh, to, to experience this, right? But when we contemplate death, or we, we come face to face with death, uh, it, it, it shakes us out of our, uh, our lethargy and makes us think about the nature of reality. So what does Paul express here in this death row experience? What does he express about the purposes of life and death? I want to suggest three things from the text here, and Philippians 1, verses 19 through 26. Number one, we can face even death with joy and confidence. So as Paul's thinking about death, the very real possibility of death, death by execution, he expresses joy. It's possible to to feel joy and confidence even in the face of death. We come away from this text realizing that we've been given everything we need to face the uncertainties of the life, uh, the uncertainties of life, everything we need, even to face death itself. So let's look here in verses 18 and 19. I'm going to pick up in verse 18. What then only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So twice in verse 18, Paul expresses his joy. I rejoice, uh, present tense. And then again, I will rejoice, future tense. So he was not only rejoicing in the moment or choosing joy in the moment, but he was determined to choose joy in the future, a very uncertain future. He also expressed confidence here in verse 19. I know, he says. He uses that phrase a couple of times in this text as well. I know. This will turn out for my deliverance. Most of the English translations uh, use that word deliverance. It's simply the word for salvation. Um, Matter of fact, Paul uses it two other times here in the letter. And in both cases, it's very specifically speaking of Paul's salvation. So I don't think Paul is saying that he is confident that he is going to be delivered out of prison... Which might be the way we would tend to read the text here. I think he's saying that he's confident that he is going to be uh, to be saved. That he's going to experience God's deliverance. Notice how he continues his thought into verse twenty. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So he's not just referring to the fact that he is going to escape execution. He's saying that I I know that I am going to experience God's deliverance, God's salvation. Living in that confidence, I'm living in that joy that Regardless of whether I live or I die, I am going to be experiencing victory and salvation and peace with God. Nothing Caesar could do could alter Paul's destiny. As Craig quoted already this morning, uh, don't fear those who can kill the body, right? Uh, Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul, Caesar could do nothing to Paul that would change or alter his destiny. No one could take his salvation from him. The end result would be the same, that he would experience salvation and vindication. Now Paul does make a significant statement here about how God would provide this salvation. Did you catch it there, in verse 19? "For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance god would accomplish this through the help of the spirit the holy spirit was the seal of paul's salvation the spirit would sustain and preserve paul through whatever might come and notice again that this is the spirit of jesus christ it's a very interesting little expression there christ has promised his presence with us There in the Great Commission passages, at the end of the Gospels, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, as you go out and and take the Gospel to the world. Um, And Christ is with us uh, by means of his Spirit. It's an interesting phrase, the the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And, And then note that this salvation would not only come through the help of the Spirit, but through the prayers of these believers. Through their prayers. What an incredible statement. In some sense, Paul connected his salvation, his deliverance, to the work of the Spirit, but also to the prayers of God's people. I don't know quite what to make of that. Is there a sense? Do we feel the weight of that? That our prayers matter? That God has chosen to pour out his grace, has chosen to act in response to our prayers. And I think if you read this correctly, the your prayers is a plural you, y'all's prayers. Right? It's, 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 it's this great statement, not only about the power of prayer, uh, but also about the power of corporate prayer, uh, when God's people gather in prayer. So Paul just reflects again here on... His confidence. Uh, it's a confidence that I think was also modeled by Stephen. Acts chapter 7 uh, tells Stephen's story. Stephen was the, uh, the first martyr of the church. The first one to be killed for his faith. And uh, the, the text says that as they were stoning him... He looked up and he saw the heavens parted. It's, it's, it's really like a the the, the the curtain or the veil that separates heaven and earth was torn open. And Stephen got a unique glimpse of reality. Here is God in all of his glory, and here is Jesus uh, at the right, standing at the right hand of the Father, the place of ultimate authority and power in the universe. And Stephen sees this. And his, uh, his, his outlook is, is really transformed. He sees the true nature of his situation. He was on the winning side. He was going to be vindicated. He actually felt so confident in that moment that he felt pity for those who were murdering him. And he prayed that God would forgive them. I mean, this transforming perspective when he saw his standing before God God's concern for him, the victory of Christ. And this is what's going on here with with Paul. He's finding joy in the fact that he has been redeemed by God. He has been joined to Christ, the High King. We can face even death with joy and confidence. Do you share uh, the confidence that Paul expresses here? Again, joy that is grounded in the gospel and the assurance of his salvation. Somebody related that definition of joy to me a few weeks ago, that joy is the emotion of hope. Joy is rooted in something solid. Joy has a foundation and so does, does does your joy have a foundation do you have the joy here that paul speaks of a joy that would sustain you even in the face of death it's possible uh, through christ to have that joy we also see here in the text that success is not contingent on our circumstances So Paul's again thinking here about his life as he faces the possibility of death and he considers his life through a certain lens. He goes on really to explain his his joy and his perspective in verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body Whether by life or by death. Notice again, the confident language, right? It is my eager expectation and hope. Amazingly, Paul is excited about his future. And again, hope in a biblical sense is not simply wishful thinking, but a confident expectation based on the promises of God. So Paul has a confident hope that he would not be at all ashamed. Remember, again, that Paul is in prison, a shameful position, but he will not be ashamed or disgraced. He actually expects the opposite, that Christ will be honored in his body. There's the the honor-shame contrast here in the text. Even though Paul is in a position of weakness, the gospel is in a position of strength, Christ will be honored in Paul's weakness. Paul's defeat will be Christ's victory. Christ will be honored whether by life or by death. Paul had already reflected in the earlier verses here about how his imprisonment had created a beachhead for the gospel. Right, that even uh, the palace guard uh, had had. Um, had heard the gospel because Paul had been imprisoned in the king's prison, in Caesar's prison. And at the end of this letter, again, he extends greeting to the church in Philippi, uh, extends greetings from the believers, the saints who are in Caesar's household. So Paul has already sort of laid this out, how uh, the gospel has actually been advanced, even though Paul has suffered... Um, Even though his situation is very uncertain, uh, the gospel has continued to advance. Perhaps in an even greater way than it would have if Paul was not in prison. So, Paul has this understanding of success in life that is not contingent on circumstances. Uh, Most know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, Her life was changed in a moment on July 30th of 1967. She, as a 17-year-old, dove into shallow water and um, severed her spinal cord, was paralyzed. And her life, uh, she's very upfront about this, has been extraordinarily difficult, as you can imagine. But her disability has provided her a platform for tremendous impact for the gospel. She was appointed to the Disability Advisory Committee for the U.S. State Department, Uh, really had a role in shaping ADA-type requirements and making things accessible for people across our country. Uh, Billy Graham commented, The first time I ever saw Johnny, she was being interviewed by Barbara Walters on NBC, and it was one of the first times I saw Barbara Walters misty-eyed over a story she was covering. <laughs> That's terrible tragedy, right? We, uh, And yet God, the, the gospel was not at all hampered. Matter of fact, uh, Johnny was given a unique platform to be able to share the redeeming love of Christ, to advocate for others with disabilities. So I think... So we consider Paul and his situation. We consider a Johnny Erickson Tato. We begin to think differently about success. The goal of life is to bring honor to Jesus. Not for us to be exalted, but for Christ to be exalted. And Christ can be exalted in our disability. Christ can be exalted in your divorce Christ can be exalted in your financial setback, right? In that failed class, in that canceled flight, that workplace conflict. Our sufferings provide a unique platform for Christ to be exalted. God so often chooses to display his strength in our weakness, as he did with Paul in his thorn in the flesh. God can even redeem the brokenness that comes about from our sin, we don't relish our sin, we don't uh, in any way uh, celebrate it, but God is able to take even our sinful choices and redeem them. John Mark, uh, you might know his story from the Bible, right? He, uh, he was a young, bo- a young man who came along with the Apostle Paul, was really Paul's apprentice, in, in his missionary journeys, and uh, John Mark abandoned, deserted Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey. But if you know the rest of the story, you know that John Mark was actually restored, became a valued um, co-laborer with Paul. When Paul gets to his dying breath, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he, he, he sends word requesting that John Mark come to him. One of his dearest friends. God redeemed John Mark's sinful, immature choices. Chuck Colson, modern example. Colson was uh, part of the whole Watergate scandal. He was, he was really President Nixon's kind of right-hand guy in all of that, involved in all sorts of, of uh, underhanded stuff. And, and Colson went to prison, and he came to Christ, and he launched a prison ministry... <laughs> Uh, God, God redeemed Colson's experience and uh, allowed him to have a unique impact for the gospel. And God can do that for us. Satan would, Satan would want us to feel defeated and demoralized by, uh, by the difficulties in our lives, by our sins, right? By that, that addiction that we're struggling with, by our anger. But if we allow, God will redeem those things for his glory, and uh, Paul gives testimony to that. He really helps shape what, how we think about success in life. Success in life is not making millions, right? Or moving up the corporate ladder, or retiring at 50 and being able to, to uh, go play golf for the next 30 years. You know, that, that's not success. Success is bringing honor to Christ. Again, that becomes very clear for Paul in this death row experience. Finally, both life and death represent hope and significance for believers. Philippians 1.21 For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul had just reflected his confidence that Christ would be honored in his life or in his death. And now Paul issues this great declaration, right? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul wasn't sure what was going to happen. And he was legitimately torn about which he would choose, death or life. Paul's emotional struggle here catches me off guard. I mean, really, Paul? You don't know whether to choose life or death? Of course, it wasn't really a choice for Paul. But the point is that both life and death were before him. And both had certain advantages. I'll be honest with you this morning. I don't want to die. Can I just say that? I'm very unspiritual compared to Paul. Paul says to, uh, to die is gain. It is far better to die, he says here in this text. Right? And that's not really where I find myself this morning. We would often say to live is gain. And to die is Christ. To die is Jesus' time. Right? But Paul flips that from our normal way of thinking. Well, what is he saying here? For me to live is Christ. If Paul were to remain alive, he could continue to serve Christ. He can continue to work in the harvest fields. Notice his language here. Verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So that means I can continue to engage in, uh, in, in tending the vines and, and, and harvesting the fruit uh, related to God's, to God's kingdom, Right? bringing people to Christ. There was work to be done. (laughs) Paul understood that the purpose of life is not the pursuit of one's personal pleasure or prosperity, but our service to God. For me to live is Christ. Uh, Here's the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. And it's a question and answer format. I'm going to pose the question and have you answer it. It's a little bit lengthy. But uh, really good. So what is your only comfort in life and in death? He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me So we just get this really robust statement about how God has redeemed us and uh, my orientation now, I belong to Him (laughs) and my life is given to serving Him. Um, This is the the language again of, of redemption in the Bible. I think it's reflected so well here and Paul reflects it here in his statement that for me to live, to go on living is to go on serving, to go on being involved in the great task and, and mission and, and purpose that god has given me in this life it's a great reminder here a great corrective for us that life is full of meaning and purpose our world is rife with depression and uh, there's a lot of reasons for that but in some cases we might be depressed because we haven't embraced the purpose for which we've been created Oh, we're doing all of these little things, but God has not created us to play video games all day or to retire at 50 to travel the world or to binge watch the, the latest Netflix episodes, right? We're called to work and to labor towards the harvest. There is a time for ceasing from our labors, but this is not it. So Paul just has this really rich understanding of what is involved in life. And then the second part of that statement, and to die is gain. Paul's desire was to depart and be with Christ. Uh, the word here, depart, means to uh, be, be loosed. And it was often used in the ancient world to describe um, the, you know, the taking of the, the, the yoke off of the oxen. And so this seems to be part of Paul, at some level, Paul was weary. Right in in the work. The work was really good and it was significant and it was of eternal consequence but he was weary in the work especially as he sat here in prison and so his real desire was to depart, to be loosed from the yoke and of course the real gain of death for Paul was an enhanced relationship with Jesus. Notice again how he says it there Verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Uh, Verse 23, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Right, So, uh, to depart or to be loosed from my yoke, but also to be with Christ. That was the real gain for Paul in death, was that he would have this enhanced relationship with Jesus. Paul says in other of his letters, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5. Paul would teach in other passages that there's some additional unfolding chapters, right? That that's not the final state, to simply be present with Jesus. Jesus is going to return the, the dead in Christ, are, uh, the, the, the bodies of those who have died are going to be raised and transformed. Uh, so there's several other stages of our, of our hope and our salvation. But, but Paul's describing what we might call the intermediate state. right? That uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that was looking pretty good to Paul right about now. The situation, he says, again, was far better than continued life in this broken world. And I think this, too, provides a corrective for us in terms of how we think about life and death. We value life. We celebrate the sanctity of life. But we do not cling desperately to life. Because death is not the end. We reflect the hope of the gospel by living well. But we also reflect the hope of the gospel by dying well. The Christian life, by the way, is not safe. We should not live in fear of death. Safety must not be our highest value. So Paul holds these two things in tension, doesn't he? The, 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 the benefits of, of, of life and going on living in the body, in the flesh, in service to the Lord, and, and, and yet the, the very real hope of, of what death represents. The taking off of the yoke. The being... Present with Christ. And how does Paul resolve this tension in his mind? Right, He says, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to think about this. Verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul makes a choice here as he thinks about it between what is best for him and what is best for these believers. He didn't just consider his own desire. His desire was to depart and be with Christ. But he knew that if he remained in this life, it would be to their benefit. So Paul here does express confidence that he would remain in this life with them. And we don't exactly know uh, why Paul had that confidence, and we don't exactly know the chronology of events. There are some who suggest that Paul was actually imprisoned in Rome twice. If you look at certain passages, 1 Timothy 1, 3, and a series of other passages, uh, you see locations and places that Paul visited that are not recorded in the book of Acts, And so some people say that he was in prison in Rome, was released, which seems to be what he indicates here. He has a strong confidence that he's going to to be released and then at a later time was imprisoned again and ultimately we know he was martyred there in Rome. But again, he expresses confidence that he would have some additional contact with these believers in Philippi in order to contribute to their progress and joy In the faith. And I think this statement here is significant as well. Paul began this section with an expression of his own joy I rejoice and I will rejoice. And now he expresses his longing for them to share in his joy. And he talks about their progress and their joy. Uh, Part of spiritual progress that Paul wanted to see was a greater spirit of joy in the lives of these believers. And that's encouraging to me. Like, joy doesn't just happen. I asked that question earlier in the series. Is joy just a new chip that gets plugged in and now all of a sudden I'm joyful? No, joy, joy, cultivating a spirit of joy uh, requires uh, some, some discipline on my part, right? It's part of my progress in the gospel, is what Paul's saying here. We have to learn to be joyful. We have to learn to choose joy. We have to learn to view our circumstances through a certain lens, through the lens of the gospel, like Paul did. So Paul wants them to share in his joy. Paul wants me to share in his joy. Paul wants us to share in his joy as well. So the prospect of death brings clarity to one's thinking and I've left a couple of uh, questions here for you to just reflect on are you determining to choose joy like Paul did right I I rejoice and I will rejoice I can see there's a there's a little edge in Paul's voice as he says this right Uh, is, is this your orientation are you determining to choose joy And Paul, again, lays out the basis and the foundation for his joy. If you come to know Christ as your Savior, are you able to say that regardless of what happens and and, and the uncertainties of your future, that you will experience deliverance by the Spirit of God? Uh, If you're not able to say that, uh, I would plead with you to respond to the gospel today, to receive that gift of salvation through Christ. Are you facing the difficult circumstances of your life with joy and confidence? Again, this is where it really uh, where we really see the test of our joy, when we encounter difficulties, specifically death. And do you think of life in terms of service to Christ? Do you think of death as gain? Uh, do you think about life and death in the proper categories?